Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here with the Hallows Church. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn them open to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this morning, we're kickstarting a new gathering, a new, a new series, and we're going to be exploring our church's vision and values. And as I've been anticipating this moment, I've, I've been asking Jesus, what's the best way to ignite that? What's the best way to kickstart that? How should we dive into our vision and our values? And and it would make sense for me to stand up and kind of tell the story of the Hallows Church and explain our history a little bit. It would make sense for me to cast vision for our church and the type of people we are seeking to be. I could stand before you and talk about the need of our context and the gospel need that exists here in West Seattle and throughout our city and, and beyond. I could talk about need. I, I could also stand before you and talk about the role that each one of you have to play in what Jesus is up to here in West Seattle and beyond, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a role to play in what Jesus is doing, and I could stand up and, and explain a lot of that. But the more that I've prayed and the more that I've uh, considered this moment and what it represents as we move on into uh, our time together in this next little stretch together, I've been... I've grown more convinced that what we need isn't so much for me to stand up and cast a vision for our church. What is needed is for us to catch a vision of God. Not a vision for our church, but a vision of God. There's a world of difference between those two starting places. We need a vision of God that is capable for accounting for our identity as a worshiping missional community called the Hallows Church. You see, I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with A.W. Tozer when he said, what comes, into our minds is the sing- what comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. You see, your vision of God, how, how you understand God to be, who he is and what he is like, that will determine the lives that you lead, the families you raise, that will determine your approach to your jobs, and ultimately that will determine the type of church we become. And the veracity of our vision, the the veracity of our vision of God will be determined by by whether or not we draw upon one of two sources to have that vision come to be. Either we can consider God and conceive him as the result of our speculations and kind of work from the ground up, or we can give ourselves to divine revelation and let him work from the top down. We can give ourselves to guesswork and speculation And we can toy with God and toy with the ideas of God by trying to dream up some vision of who he is and what he is like. Or we can submit to the grace work of revelation. We can let God speak to us and let God reveal to us who he is and what he is like. You see, a test was given to some college students not too long ago that that listed about 24 questions asking them, what do you think Jesus is like? And the questions would explore, do you think Jesus was an extroverted life of the party? Or do you believe Jesus was more introverted? Do you think Jesus got nervous? Do you you think Jesus is moody? What, What is Jesus like? And so these students ran through and answered these questions. And that first set of about 24 questions was then... Uh, kind of reworked, and the language was adjusted a bit and given back to the same students. And only this time, the questions were kind of tied to revealing their own personalities and their own preferences and what types of people they were like. And this is a popular test. It's actually been administered by many professionals in many places, but the, the consistency behind the results is remarkable. Because over the course of this time, this, this test reveals that everyone has a tendency to think that Jesus is just like them. We tend to view Jesus 
as we view ourselves. We tend to like about Jesus what we like about ourselves. We, we tend to cast Jesus in our own images. And this, the questionnaire, that, that whole process, it kind of gives credence to what a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire said about three centuries ago when he said, you know, if God created you and I in his image, we've certainly returned, his, we've certainly returned the favor uh, we have a tendency to convey God and to cast God in our own images as well. And so if you have these two starting points, this one being human speculation and guesswork, and the other starting point being divine revelation and letting God uh, speak to us, if you think about human speculation as it relates to our vision of God, understand that human speculation is a lot like looking, in, looking for God in the mirror of our self-reflection. And we'll say, well, if I'm like this, then God must be like this. Or if I think that, then God must think that. And all the while, when we are doing that, we end up broadcasting to the watching world a vision of God that looks more like us than it does like him. And the result of that approach is an impotent vision of God incapable of changing anybody's life. An impotent vision of God that is not worthy of the worship that we're singing and the lives that we're living in the here and now. West Seattle does not need a God who looks like us. So we don't want to give ourselves to human speculation. I have a two-year-old son named Asher, and one of his favorite games to play right now is called the Lion Game. And every time we play the Lion Game, he kind of creeps into the house, and he kind of looks like this, and he gives this little face, and he gets ready to tussle and to roll around like lions in our living room. And now, if that picture intimidates you and you have your kids in the kids' ministry and you're worried, uh, don't worry. He's a gentle boy. He's actually not there this morning. But even if he was, he's a gentle boy. Don't sweat the kids' ministry. He'll be kind to them. But he's got a fierce lion face. And so our favorite game is to tussle around in the living room as though we are lions and we chase one another and we play with one another. And, and it never fails. Every time we play this game, he gets it in his mind that he wants to go see the lions at the zoo. And so the next day, as often as we can, we will go to uh, the Woodland Park Zoo and we will run to the lion's den and we'll get there and I'll push his stroller up to the glass and I'll sit back and drink my coffee and, and we'll just watch the lions. It's a very casual, laid back moment and we're entertained easily for about an hour and a half. <laughs> we're watching these lions and it's a, it's a good moment for the two of us, but there's no, there's no stress involved in that because we are safely protected, right? We're safely protected from the lion in this artificial environment that we've created. This den, this glass, these gaps between us. We're seeing the lion, but we're not really seeing the lion, are we? That lion is simply an object of our entertainment, and we easily forget that that lion is the king of the jungle, and if we were seeing that lion in any other setting, our response to that lion would be completely, completely different. You see, what human speculation does is human speculation tends to set God in an artificial habitat, an artificial, non-threatened environment, one that we can monitor and control like zookeepers. And we prevent God from being anything more to us than an object of our entertainment. And we easily forget that he's the one who's responsible for our very existence and we easily forget that he's the one that we are accountable to for the lives that we lead. We easily forget that this God that we're singing to today is the ruler of the entire cosmos. And so we, we just kind of tame God and we, we make him a safe God. And he looks a lot like us. And 
All the while, this God no longer challenges us. And if you have a God that doesn't challenge you or threaten you in any way, you have a God that cannot change you. You have a God that cannot save you. And so we want to consider the dangers of speculating about God and giving ourselves to guesswork and dreaming about who God is. And, and so I ask you to just hold on to, your, hold on to that and then imagine the difference that our response would be to a lion if, let's say, uh, that lion broke out of its den from the zoo. And Asher and I are walking through Woodland Park, heading to the car, getting ready to go home, and all of a sudden we cross paths with that same lion, only that same lion is no longer in a den. That lion is standing right in front of us, and we are locking eyes with this creature. Our response in that moment is going to be completely different. We're not going to try to run from this lion. That would be ridiculous. You can't outrun a lion. Now, I've been told if you're ever in that situation, you don't have to be fast. You just have to be faster than the person you're with. But that's my boy, right? I, can't, I, I, I could outrun him, but I, can, I can't bail on him in that moment. And so what we're going to do, we're not going to run. We're not going to flee. We're going to stand and we're going to see. And we're going to respond to that lion with what's called humble deference. We're going to let that lion determine what goes down next. We'll move when he says we can move. We'll do what he says we can do. And if by some miracle that lion draws near to us and he gets really close to us and that lion instead, of, instead in that moment chooses to lick us rather than bite us, you can bet that that's going to leave an indelible impact on how we go about the rest of our day. It's an amazing thing to be treated kindly by a powerful creature. And when you consider the difference between human speculation and divine revelation, it's the difference between relating to God or envisioning God that, that comes from visiting a lion at the zoo or seeing the lion in his habitat in the jungle where he is free and full to do as he pleases. This is precisely the God Isaiah is exposed to in Isaiah chapter 6. He comes across the Lord in the temple. And in this moment, he discovers that this God, he's not very safe, but this God is very good, right? He catches a vision of God that isn't safe, that isn't tameable, that can't be manipulated, that can't be changed or adjusted. He catches a vision of God that will require of him humble deference, where he allows this God to set the agenda for his life. He allows this God to set the tempo for his worship. This is exactly what goes down beginning in verse 1 where Isaiah catches this vision of God, this revelation of God. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Notice where it begins right there in verse 1. This revelation requires Isaiah to look up and to look out. The starting point for any right understanding of God cannot come or cannot begin by you and I looking within. If you and I look for God by looking within, we're only going to find a God who looks a lot like us, who would never challenge or threaten us, and who can ultimately not change or transform us. We will find a God who's not worthy of worship. So our vision of God must start not by looking inward. Our vision of God must start by looking upward and looking outward. This is what Isaiah discovers in the year that King Uzziah died. He saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, looking up and looking out. And all of this goes down in the year that King Uzziah died. One thing you want to know about this king is that Uzziah was a relatively good king. 
He led a long and prosperous reign over the people of Israel. 52 years, he ruled the people and he led them into a long stretch of prosperity. But what happened in Uzziah's life is is the same thing that can happen in our lives, that long stretches of prosperity can give way to a proud spiritual complacency. And so at the end of his reign and at the end of his rule, he was no longer honoring God as God and revering God and respecting God and seeking to worship God on the terms that God set out. Instead, he tried to chart his own course. So at the end of his days, this proud spiritual complacency caused him to say, you know, I know the priests have been offering sacrifices in the temple. I don't need that anymore. I mean, look at my track record. I've been a good king. God has blessed this nation. He's blessed the people of Israel over the course of my reign and my rule. I don't need to go to him through the sacrifices being rendered by the priests. So instead, I'll just come to God on my own. I'll I'll offer up my own sacrifices. And in saying that, Uzziah was offending God. Uzziah was sinning against God. He was responding to God, not on the basis of what God had revealed, but on his proud speculations about God. Surely God would accept my own sacrifices. I don't have to go through priests to get to him. And so Isaiah threatened to kill the priests when they tried to offer sacrifices on his behalf, and God responded with discipline. God responded by striking Uzziah down. He fell under leprosy and leper leper spots began to show up on his skin and begin to consume his body. And he lived the last small stretch of his days wrapped in the cloths as a leper. And he died. The people of Israel, when Uzziah died, they were greatly disturbed by that development. Thinking, why? How could that happen to a good king? How could that happen to a good man? How could that happen to a good leader? Well, it can happen when Uzziah fails to respond to the revelation of God, but instead starts speculating about God and charting his own course to God. That's how it can happen. And so the leprosy that took over his body and his death was the result of divine discipline on his life to show the people of Israel, look, you need to be disturbed by this and you need to remember that I am a holy God and I am high and lifted up. This holy disruption came about as a result of Uzziah's death. And this holy disruption is something that you and I should at times desire from God for our lives. It's possible for long stretches of prosperity to give way to a proud spiritual complacency, which is why you and I must humbly recognize that we need God at times to lovingly disrupt our lives. Now, I'm not saying we need to ask God to give us leprosy. What I'm saying is that we want to ask God to disrupt anything within us or around us that is causing us to casually approach him at any point in time or causing us to lose our reverence or respect for who he is and what he is about. We want to pray what Sir Francis Drake often prayed back in the day when he was exploring and doing his stuff. He, he often asked, Lord, would you disrupt my life? And listen to what he said. He would pray this. He would say, Lord, would you disrupt my life? He says, Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when, our, when, a, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. 
Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to grow dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of land. We shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, in courage, in hope, and in love. We should welcome these holy disruptions because holy disruptions have a way of drawing us back to the root of divine revelation where we are reminded of who God is and our eyes are purged so that we can, the eyes of our hearts are purged so we can see God for who he is and what he is like. This is exactly what goes down in Isaiah's life. It was in the year that King Uzziah died, this holy disruption that caused him in the temple to look up and to see the Lord. Holy disruption, bringing him back to the root of divine revelation. And so when Isaiah looked up and he saw the Lord sitting on his throne, what he saw there uh, floored him. Verse 2, it says, now, as I'm looking up and I'm beginning to see something of God, I'm seeing these seraphim, these, these fiery angelic beings. Now, these seraphim, don't think, you know, chubby white babies in diapers when you think about the seraphim in the Bible. That's not a good image. That's not very holy. When you, when you think seraphim, think fiery angelic beings. These are, there's a lot of heat coming from the seraphim as they're encircling the throne of God and they are singing a song. But notice how they're singing. They're singing with great humility. They have six wings and with two, they're covering their faces. With two, they're covering their feet. And with two, they're flying around the throne. Understand that even these creatures in the presence of God could not be in the presence of God without some type of covering, without being shielded by something. The heat of the holiness of God would have consumed these fiery angelic beings if they're not covered, if they're not protected. And you're going to hold on to that when we get to the end of this text. And you're going to see something about the gospel in that. So these fiery angelic beings are encircling the throne of God, covering themselves up, and they're crying out. Notice what they're, they're singing. They're singing a song that's infatuated with who God is. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. They're infatuated with who God is, and, and they're doing that. And the language of this text suggests that what they're doing in that moment is the same thing they're doing in this moment. As we sit here in real time, seraphim are encircling the throne of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory, praising God for his incomparable nature and his power and his glory. They're, they're singing right now. And what that means for you and I as we step into this space and we begin to sing songs together, understand that when we kick-started this gathering off, we didn't start something. Every time we gather together and we start singing, we're not starting anything. We're stepping into and participating in what's already going down. We're joining the throne room of heaven, uniting our voices in praise and in worship and in adoration of our God. We are joining in in what's already taken place. This means that when you go home after this gathering and you take your nap, the angels will still be praising God. This means when you stub your toe and you curse, 
The worthiness and the glory and the holiness of God is not diminished in any way. The angels are still upholding and praising and exalting who God is. That's going down 24-7. You go to bed, they're still singing, and they never get tired of singing the same song over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy. You are glorious. The whole earth is full. They never get tired of singing that one song. That one refrain back and forth over and over and over and over again. They're obsessed with God. Ultimately, that's what worship leads us to do, right? Worship leads us to obsess with God. But it also means when you consider the seraphim encircling the throne of God and singing in this way, this means that when you and I unite our voices and we participate in that song, we are not enhancing God in any way, shape, or form. We do not worship God because God's ego has deflated. So we got to kind of pump some air into his ego by ascribing holiness and glory and praising him. We don't worship God to enhance him in any way, shape, or form. He's fine. He's being worshiped. His praises are being sung. And they're not being sung because if they weren't being sung, God would somehow diminish or he would shrink or he would be less holy or less glorious. No, they are singing because there is an enjoyment that comes from praising God. We worship and sing not to enhance God, but to enjoy God. A guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, he said this about praise. He says, you know, human beings delight to praise what they enjoy because the praise, that expression of praise and adoration doesn't merely, uh, that merely expresses but completes the enjoyment and brings our enjoyment of God full circle. Therefore, easing, even when we praise God for who he is, That's grace to us. That's goodness to us. Our enjoyment of God is being brought full circle. It's not unlike my experience last night. I took my two-year-old son to the University of Washington basketball game to see them play Arizona, the number five team in the night in the country. There was a small glimmer of hope that the Huskies would have pulled that game out. They they didn't. But at the end of the first half, we thought they did. We, We thought they were. Because at the end of the first half, I'm sitting there with Asher on my lap, and their star player hits a three pointer at the buzzer to tie the game. And everybody expected the Huskies to just get blown out of the water by this team. But, but they're in it. And this guy hits this big shot. And everybody in the crowd goes wild. Now, when everybody started to cheer, understand that their cheers did not cause that ball to go in the rim. They cheered not to enhance the game or to improve the players on the court. They cheer as a way of expressing their enjoyment of what's going down and to bring their joy into full completion. And so when that shot went in, I'm sitting there with my son Asher, and and I'll be honest, my my enjoyment wasn't brought to consummation. It wasn't brought full circle because I had to subdue it because he was sitting on my lap. I couldn't just jump up and throw him over and start cheering, right? So so I'm sitting there just holding my boy, and and I'm compressed a little bit. A lot more joy is in me than what I was able to give out. And if I was able to stand up and start high-fiving everybody around me and pointing and laughing at the Arizona fans down the way from me, you you would bet my joy would have been brought to full completion. Well, when it comes to the worship of God and how we unite our voices and singing to him. We're not adding anything. We're not enhancing anything. We're enjoying who he is. We're enjoying the beauty of our God. This is precisely what the seraphim are doing when they're saying, holy, holy, holy. That word holy is a powerful word. And when you see it three times listed like that, 
it enhances its power of, of that word, of what the seraphim are saying about God. You see, the way the ancient Hebrew writers used to do superlatives is that they would re- repeat themselves. They don't do what we do on text by using emojis, right? Or, or just putting something in all caps and littering a line, stretching a line long with exclamation points. No, they just repeated themselves. Holy, holy, holy. That's, that was the, the fullest, most superlative way that they could say something about God is to repeat themselves. And so they say holy three times to, to get maximum impact. Maximum impact. And that word holy, it, it's an interesting thing for them to be excited about. And the holiness of God is an interesting thing for you and I to get excited about. It's the only time in the Bible where you see three characteristics of God littered together. It's only holy, holy, holy. It's never love, love, love. It's never mercy, mercy, mercy. It's never faithful, faithful, faithful. It's always holy, holy, holy. Why do you think that is? It's remarkable because the holiness of God is the one aspect or the, it's really, it's the summary designation of all that God is in contrast with everything else. To say that you are a holy God means you are unique, you are distinct, you are in a class of by yourself when it comes to everything about who you are. You are a holy God, and that's what they're saying. But understand that when you and I celebrate the holiness of God, we are celebrating what's true about God for who he is, not necessarily celebrating something about God that benefits us in any way. We can celebrate the mercy of God and think, because we've benefited from the mercy of God. There's an exchange that goes down when our sins are forgiven. We can celebrate the faithfulness of God when he comforts us in our struggles because there's an exchange there. There's a benefit that we get from from the faithfulness of God. But when it comes to the holiness of God and we start to celebrate that, understand that we are worshiping God for who he is, not necessarily for what he's done. When you are enamored with the holiness of God, you're worshiping him Not because you find him useful to your life. You're worshiping God because he's beautiful and unique and exalted and distinct. We're worshiping God for who he is. That's the maturation of a human being's worship. When you and I draw near to God and we begin to celebrate who he is for who he is. And sure, we benefit from the things that God does for us, no doubt. He's a good God. But another interesting thing about the holiness of God, not only is that the one, this description of who God is, it doesn't immediately benefit us in the sense it's actually a threat to us. When you consider the holiness of God and, and his glory, that word glory means his weightiness, his importance, his significance, his heaviness. To say that his glory fills the earth is to say that, God, you are the most important being there ever is and there ever will be. That's what they're saying. You, you are more important than every other person on the planet. You are more important than every other nation, every other tribe. Every, you are God. Your glory fills the earth. But to sing that about God is, is unbelievable because we're celebrating God for who he is. And we're, we're recognizing these truths about God that aren't necessarily or immediately encouraging to our hearts. The holiness and the glory of God threaten us. The holiness and glory of God reveal what's wrong with us. So at first glance, you think, why would we ever celebrate that? Because if we see God as holy and if we see him as glorious, our response isn't going to be, wow. Our response is going to be what Isaiah gives in this text. Whoa. Isaiah doesn't immediately say, wow. He said, Whoa, woe is me, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, and there is a difference between him and I that I can't fix. And so the holiness of God, the glory of God levels Isaiah. It causes him to be laid low. And when you and I begin to think about the holiness and the glory of God, we too will be leveled. We too will be laid low. You see, worship that's rooted in divine revelation requires us to look up and to see God for who he is. And then in response to seeing him for who he is, we are laid low. We are leveled. We begin to cry out, yes, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And what's interesting about this exchange is Isaiah is coming to this conclusion. He's recognizing this. He's seeing the difference between him and his God. And and it's interesting because when you and I consider the holiness and the glory of God, understand that that dynamic, that dynamic has a way of tearing at our tendency to view other people as the problem in the world. We will only be proud if we have no vision of God. We can only think we're better than another human being if we have no vision of God. If our vision of God is built on speculation rather than revelation, we're going to live our lives comparing and contrasting ourselves with everyone around us, and at times we're going to think we're better than them. And when it comes to diagnosing the problems in the world, we're certainly not going to look in the mirror and point the finger at ourselves. We're going to just look out the window and point the finger at everybody else. This is why Democrats blame Republicans. Republicans blame blame Democrats. Baby bloomers, is that the right word? Blame millennials. Is that the right word? Millennials blame the other generation. Husbands blame wives. Wives blame husbands. Children blame the parents. The problem's with everybody else. But here, if you catch a vision for God and you begin to look up and look out, it will level you and you will see yourself as part of the problem. And you will say with Isaiah, you know, I'm not better than anybody else. Woe is me. I'm a man just like everybody else. And I can't be in the presence of this holy and glorious God. You look back at Isaiah chapter 5 and what's happening. Isaiah chapter 5, over and over and over again, the prophet is saying, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. He's pointing out what's wrong with everybody else. But when he finds himself in the presence of God and God shows up and reveals himself and he sees holiness and glory He sees the seraphim singing this song. All of a sudden, it's not woe is you. It's woe is me. I'm undone. I'm lost. I'm ruined. The glue that's holding my sense of self together is is melting. I'm like the wicked witch of the west or east, whatever direction you want to say. I'm melting in the presence of this holy God. Woe is me. But notice the source of his problem. He says, I am a man of unclean what? I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's a prophet. His lips are his pride and joy. His mouth represents his service to God. His mouth represents what everybody else looks to him and says, that's a strong, godly man all tied to his lips, all tied to how he uses his mouth. And what's he saying in the presence of God? I'm a man of unclean lips. And that doesn't mean that Isaiah has a beard like mine so that every time he eats a meal, he has to pick food out of it. It it means that he's recognizing something about himself in the presence of God that needs to be recognized. That in the presence of a holy, glorious God, the contrast between the creator and the creature is so stark that even our strengths are weaknesses. 
our righteousness is revealed as unrighteousness. This is what Isaiah is discovering. The contrast is too stark. So even that which he's confident in is exposed as an utter inadequate source for accounting for his relationship with God. In other words, in your worship, you can thank God for your gifts. You can thank God for your strengths. But in your worship, you can never put your faith and your trust in your strengths or in your gifts. Recognize even the best parts about you need redemption. Even your assets are liabilities before a holy God. I am a man of unclean lips. Everything about me, my sin and my strengths needs to be purged, needs to be cleansed, needs to be covered up because this God is too holy and too glorious for me. If the seraphim needed a covering, Isaiah needed a covering as well. And if the seraphim and Isaiah need a covering, you and I need covering as well. You see, one of the biggest challenges to our relationship with God and the ministry that we're engaged in here in West Seattle and throughout this region is the reason people don't tend to put their faith in Jesus isn't because they're aware of their sin. It's not sin necessarily that holds people back. It's the sense of self-righteousness. It's the sense of self-sufficiency. It's the thought, well, I'm a good, I'm a relatively good dad, especially when you compare my fatherhood to all the fathers around me who are really jacking things up. I'm a good employee. I show up and work on time. I do my job. I'm a good, I'm a patient mom. So I'm very patient with my two-year-old when they're driving me up the wall. And what holds people back from recognizing who God is and responding with a humble deference isn't so much their sin, it's their strengths, it's their self-sufficiency, and this is exactly what needs to be exposed and eradicated in the heart of every human being in this room. Our self-sufficiency, our understanding of strengths need to be humbly deferred to God. Worship occurs when we look up and we're laid low, when we are humbled before this God. Because only then, when you are humbled before God, setting everything down, your sins and your strengths, your confidences, putting it all before this holy God, only then will you begin to discover what grace is. Only then will you qualify for the lifting grace of God. After Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, what goes down in verse 6? He's laid low, he's hopeless, he's uncovered in the presence of God, and that's not a good thing to be. And so what happens? Verse six, a seraph, then one of the seraphim flew to him. Get this, having in his hand a burning coal. A burning coal that he had taken from where? That he had taken with tongs from the altar, the place of sacrifice. And behold, he touched my mouth and said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Another word for atoned, covered. This coal and it touching Isaiah's lips coming from the altar is God's way of saying to Isaiah, I've got you covered. But I want you to think deeply about what's going down in this moment. I want you to think well about what's going on in this moment. When that burning coal comes from the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah, We are forever seeing how the lifting grace of God will forever be attached to sacrifice, will always be attached to substitutionary sacrifice. What happened on that altar, in order for it to be 
kind of smoldering and hot to be applied to Isaiah's life in that moment, that means at some point in time, a priest stepped up to that altar. And that priest took a lamb and put the lamb on that altar that was still living, that was still breathing, whose heart was still beating beneath its fur. And this lamb would be standing on an altar where coals are spread out. And and the priest would then come and touch the lamb and then pray a prayer asking for God to forgive our sins, to take our sins away, to atone for them, to cover them. And then after voicing that prayer, the priest would then take a knife and slit the lamb's throat and spill its blood. And blood would start gushing out onto the altar, drenching the coals. The coals would be set on fire and that fire would consume everything on the altar. Chances are high that that coal, when it was brought to Isaiah's, lip, Isaiah's lips, it was stained by the blood of a lamb. Grace and sacrifice always go together in the kingdom of God. The worship of a holy and glorious God by unclean creatures like you and me requires the mediation. It requires the covering. It requires the help of a sacrifice. And that means you don't have to think very hard to get to the gospel, right? You think about John chapter 1 where Jesus is stepping onto the scene in Galilee and his cousin sees him. What does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one who will die so that my sins can be forgiven. And he's not going to die over and over and over again. He's going to die once for all so that all of my sins, past, present, and future, may be rendered, may be forgiven and my life accepted by God. And not only will he cover my sins, he's going to cover the, that within me that causes me to put my faith in the things that I do well. So that never in my worship will I ever say, well, I'm able to worship this God because I, did, I went to Bible study last week. Or I'm going to worship God this week because I was a good mom or a patient dad this week. We're, we'll never say that. We're going to come together and say, we're worshiping this God because this God covered my sin through the sacrifice of his son. And when we get there, when we see grace and sacrifice tied together in our worship, all of a sudden, you and I will start magnifying the gospel in our worship. The gospel will become the focal point of our, song, of our singing and our being and our doing. The gospel will be everything. We can adore God for who he is in his holiness and his glory. We can be honest about who we are in our uncleanliness and our need for grace. And then we can run to the cross of Christ and find our covering there. Just as this highly exalted king dispatches the seraphim to the altar to take that coal and to apply it to Isaiah, years later, God the Father would dispatch the Son into this world who would live a life of utter obedience, dying a death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And this Jesus would three days later rise from the grave so that you and I can stand before God and not say, whoa, but wow. We can stand before God and not tremble and think we have to flee from him. We can come humbly before this God in humble deference, letting him set the agenda, letting him set the tempo, letting him set the course for our lives, for our worship, for our ministry, for our mission, for our families, for our churches. We can defer to God in every conceivable way because he is not only holy and glorious, he is good and gracious. Isaiah would discover this. And every time you and I think about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we rediscover it over and over and over again. 
And our response is humble deference. Our response is, Lord, you are God and you are good. We trust you. And then we say at the end, like Isaiah says at the end of this text in verse 8, after that coal touches his lips and his sin is atoned for, he's close enough to the throne of the king that he can hear him say, now who's going to go for us? Who's going to go project and broadcast this vision of God to the watching world? Who's going to showcase my holiness and my glory? Who's going who's to talk about humility and uncleanliness? Who's going to tell people, look, don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust in the Savior. Who's going to go forth and magnify the gospel? And Isaiah, what does he say? Here am I, send me. The same lips that were previously rendered unclean are now saying, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. God's grace qualifies Isaiah for the ministry that he would execute. And understand, it is God's grace in the gospel that qualifies each and every one of you to participate in what God is doing in the life of this church, what God is doing throughout this city, and what God is doing throughout this world. It's not your strengths that qualify you. It's not your gifts. It's God's grace. So we say with Isaiah, here am I, send us. Or here are we, send us. Let us go and be. Let us enjoy God together as we participate with him and all that he's doing in the Hallows Church in West Seattle and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning and I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us through the scriptures you have given to us. And I pray that you would seize our hearts with a vision of you that is worthy of you. Help us to have a felt sense of your holiness and your glory. Give us a felt sense of our need and our weakness. Give us a felt sense of your grace towards us in Jesus. And Father, as we look up and you lay us low and then you lift us up, I pray that we would in turn say, let's go. And we would be the kind of people and the kind of church that defer to you, who give our lives to you, who trust you, who serve you, who walk with you. We pray for all of this, all of this in Jesus' name.